Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for this opportunity to be uh, impacted and transformed by your word. Uh, may it be engrafted unto our very hearts that it may renew us uh, in both action and in mind. Uh, and so, Lord, we just pray that your word would be uh, just so sown into us, Lord, that we would be renewed with a new hope uh, as we long for your return. Uh, and we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said amen. 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 Well, uh, just by way of uh, background a little bit so we can get caught up here to where we are in uh, chapter 4 of of Thessalonians as we continue our series on authentic Christianity, Um, uh, Paul has, uh, as usual, uh, planted a church. He's on a missionary journey, planted a church in Thessalonica, uh, began to pour into this group of believers Uh, And before he uh, had the opportunity to finish uh, in his discipleship process and and finish uh, walking them through uh, the core doctrines of the faith and allow them to grow and uh, allow them to develop and and then establish leadership in the church, uh, what happened was there were some Jews who were, uh, quote unquote, hating on the ministry, uh, didn't want to hear anything about this Jesus, this Christ crucified Uh, And so they came in and uh, basically ran Paul out of town. Uh, And so now Paul is receiving news about this young church uh, that's still uh, developing in their walk with Jesus, still young in their walk with Jesus. And uh, he's trying to encourage them uh, in the faith, and he's checking in on them to see how they're doing because he's concerned that since he hasn't had a full allotment of time, to spend discipling with them, that there'll be some roadblocks and some hindrances uh, in in their growth that they may be stunted. And so he receives some good news back, and so he's encouraging them in the faith. And and he gets ready here in in chapter 4, verse 13, to address one of the core issues uh, that that, that they were worried about as young believers here in Thessalonica. And so what had happened was since Paul's departure, since Paul had to leave, uh, some of the believers had since died. Uh, whether it had been from uh, old age or naturally or uh, whether there was just an occurrence uh, where they passed away. And so what happened was because uh, their doctrine, the doctrine of their faith uh, wasn't uh, completed yet because they didn't have uh, a totality of information, they began to assume some things about what happens when a believer dies. Uh, and, and, and what happened was because they didn't have a clue of what happened, They began to assume some things, and it caused them to become very depressed, and they began to dive into a world of despair. And so Paul, in verse 13, opens it up, and he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, uh, brothers. We don't want you to be ignorant, uh, brothers. We don't want you to be not knowing of the truth, uh, because what happens when you don't know the truth is you do what the Thessalonians did, and you typically assume something. And so uh, a lot of times what happens is when you get partial information or when you get incomplete information, and you jump to a conclusion, and then you begin to live life based on the conclusion that you got from partial information, it causes a lot of damaging effects in not only how you operate, but also in your relationships and your outlook on life in general. And so for them, uh, because they didn't know about what happens and what the resurrection would entail, they, they surmised, based off this lack of information, that when you die, you just stop existing and there's nothing else. And so the reason for their troubling, the reason uh, they were so downcast, the reason that they were so despairing was because they thought that even, when, even though they had a relationship with God in Christ, 
while they were alive, death now separated from, from Christ. And because they had died, they would no longer be able to participate in the joy of his return. And so that caused a lot of hopelessness. And so Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, right? And I, I like how Paul uses this word uh, asleep because uh, typically the pagan world would use this word sleeping to signify death. Um, and, and, but there was a, there was, it was just really in a poetic sense. So uh, they would just use it to, to make death sound good because uh, for the pagan there really was no hope. At death, it was the end. They, they were trying as much as they could to stay away from death uh, because there was no, like death didn't bring any to, like there was no benefit for them dying. They just th- ceased to exist. So it was the worst thing that could happen, right? And, and so, uh, and so uh, Paul here is saying, we don't want you to be concerned about those or we don't want you to be uh, ignorant or not knowing of all the facts about those who have since died uh, because he's going to get into this in a second because you've been found in Christ. You've been found in God through Christ. Now, for the pagans, uh, death was such, death was such, uh, uh, there, there came so much hopelessness with death because they had been separated from God. At least that's what Paul begins to walk through in chapter 2 of Ephesians when he says, he says, at one point in time, you, you Gentiles, so that would include everybody in this room unless you were born of, of Jewish heritage, but at one point in time, you were separated uh, from, uh, from the promises of Israel. You were, you, were, uh, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were, you were separate from the law of God and the things of God. And, and, and then he, he finishes it by saying, and you had, and they had no hope and were without God in the world. And so for the pagan, for, for those who didn't know God, their hopelessness was immediately and unequivocally tied to the reality that they didn't have a relationship with God. Right? So even the, even the non-believer who lives, there's a sense of, of not having any peace because there's, in, in, in his soul, the man in his soul and not in relationship with God can feel that tension of not being in right relationship with God and the, the spiritual implications of having the wrath of God be placed on you if you are not in relationship with Christ. Right? That's why in Ephesians, later on in Ephesians, Paul goes down and he says, he, referring to Jesus, is our peace. Right? Because there's a, there's a sense of peace for the believer, knowing that you're in relationship with God, knowing that you're in right standing with God through Christ, that gives you a hope to look forward to. Uh, but be, because they didn't have a full breadth of information, uh, they were assuming that even though in life they were connected to God, death would then separate them. Now, I like, uh, again, I like how Paul uses the word asleep here because uh, he gets it from Jesus and how Jesus begins to redefine how he uses the word asleep. If you uh, remember in Luke chapter 8 with uh, Jairus' daughter uh, who was sick uh, and they came to Jesus and said, hey, my daughter's sick, I need you to heal her. Jesus is making his way there. Uh, Somebody comes and says, don't bother him, your daughter's died. And so Jesus still goes there, even though they said she's died, and, and everybody's mourning and crying. And, and, and he says, don't mourn. Why are you crying? For she's not dead. She is asleep, right? And so everybody began to mock and laugh at him because they're like, yo, we know what a dead, person's look, what a dead person looks like. Her, her, pale, her skin is pale. Uh, she's not breathing. She doesn't have any uh, heartbeat. We can't check anything. She's dead. We know she's dead. So they mock Jesus, right? And the same way with Lazarus, they come to Jesus and say, hey, the one whom you love uh, is sick, is ill. And Jesus spends some extra time where he is because he said he wants to use this situation to glorify God. So he stays there a little longer till Lazarus dies, makes his way over there. They're like, Jesus, you could have saved him. He's, he's like, chill. Don't worry about it. I got this. He's not dead. He's asleep, 
right? And so when, when Jesus uses this word asleep, he's doing something very beautiful where he's pointing to this idea of resurrection because in the same way where, he begin, where you think of sleep as being a, a rest or a renewal and when you go to sleep, you, there's an expectation of continued life afterwards, he's pointing to this beautiful idea of trying to give them a deeper understanding of what the resurrection for the believer will look like. And so, and so for him, death is not the end. Death is not uh, finite in terms of when he's talking about the believer. For the believer, the death is not finite. It doesn't end. He's saying, listen, for the believer, death is merely sleep because you will be raised up again to new life. And so he's beginning to develop for them a deeper understanding of, of what it looks like for the believer as it pertains to the resurrection. And so Paul here is affirming uh, those teachings of Jesus or affirming that, and he's trying to encourage them by saying, listen, I know that you're worried about those who have died, and you're worried about whether or not they will get to participate in the second coming of Jesus, but know and understand that they're not really dead, they're asleep right? And so, and so for the Thessalonians, not only were they concerned about their friends and their family members and, and them getting, and them missing out on this return of Jesus, but it, if I was them, I'd be worried about me too. Like, what if I die and Jesus hasn't come back yet? Am I going to miss out on this? I mean, for, for, for us as believers, it, it should pain. If you, have, if you have friends or family who are unbelievers and you really understand the depth of what's going to happen to them if they die without Christ, like, can you, can you imagine, like, do, do you know that tugging on your soul, like that piercing of the soul wh- that makes you just want to weep for them? Well, this, this is what happened is, this is what's happening for them because they're, they're assuming that because they're, di- they, they're, they're not alive when Christ returns, that they won't get the benefits of having been in relationship with him. And so this is, this is like, it's rocking their mind. And so Paul wants to affirm and confirm that they don't have to be all shook up about it because, uh, be, because even though uh, they've died, they will be raised to new life. And so he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, ignorant of the truth, uh, and make crazy assumptions about those who are sleeping but uh, will wake again. But then he says, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And again, pointing back to that Ephesians uh, chapter 2 for, for those unbelievers who don't have, uh, who don't have uh, hope and were, are without uh, God in the world. So when we talk about, when we talk about uh, hope, uh, what are we saying? Hope is the act of being assured that your future will be better than your now as the believer. The act of being assured that your future will be better than your now. And so Paul here, Paul here is saying, listen, I'm not telling you not to grieve. As a Christian, I'm not saying that, that you're supposed to be without sorrow and without grief. We even see that Jesus in John 11, when Lazarus did die, it says Jesus wept, right? And Jesus grieved over that loss of his friend. But, but as a believer, your grieving over loss should look differently. It should look differently because for the non-believing, for the unbelieving, for those who don't have a relationship with God, then death is just the beginning of the worst thing that you could possibly experience. Whereas for the believer, if you've been engrafted into the family of God, death is but merely a door to being with him forever, right? And so, and so there's, a, there's a hope in being able to uh, know that death is not the end for you, but there's something afterwards, there's something better after death than even in the life that you were experienced before you died, right? And so, so Paul wants to encourage them that, that this, this hope that you have should push you further than just this life. 
that you're in. The, the, the vision of the hope that you have, your expectation of better uh, should push you, fa- push you uh, past the circumstances that you're experiencing right now, right? And so, so Paul gives them this description of hope, uh, and, and by doing so, he wants to let them know that hope is not a matter of temperament. Uh, hope is not uh, conditioned by circumstances, meaning that your, your hope isn't determined by what's happening in your life. Uh, if, if, if your hope is swayed by things that are going on in your life, uh, if, if the, the, the busyness and the, the hurt and the distractions of this world are big enough to uh, shatter your hope, then your hope has been contaminated and you've got a false hope. You've got a, a false hope because with, with, with hope comes the sense of perseverance um, because if, if you believe that you've got a hope that will at no point be challenged or, or, or there won't be something that come against uh, you to, to, to get you to come off of your hope, then you're sadly mistaken. But your, your hope uh, has to be rooted in the depths of knowing someone that, that, that gives you enough faith to believe them enough to do what they said they would do. And that's specifically, specifically pertaining to Jesus. For instance, you, you only get the limit of that which you hope in. What do I mean by that? If you hope in education, you're only going to get as much as education can give you. If you're hoping in marriage, you're only going to get as much as marriage can give you. Like if, if you're hoping in your finances, you're only going to get as much as your finances can give you. So you're, the hope that you have has to be established and rooted enough in something that will bring it to full completion. Right? And so that's what he wants the Thessalonian church to know is that the only hope that will bring your joy and your satisfaction to completion is the hope in a person. Yeah. Right? And so, that, and so when, when he begins to identify what true uh, biblical hope for the believer should look like, it doesn't look like this false hope of the world um, because he says your hope will satisfy you. And so when you, when you hope in anything but Christ, you're always going to be left disappointed. That's why, that's why he says in Jeremiah 2.13, he says, for I'm the fountain of living water. He says, I, he says, he says uh, 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 stop drinking from broken cisterns and drink of me, the fountain of living water. Broken cistern, just to give you a picture, imagine a big jug of water uh, or a big jug, empty jug that has a big hole in the bottom. And the jug is the thing that you are hoping in to satisfy you, right? And the water are your passions or your affections that you want to fill in that thing that you want to satisfy you. And so what happens with a broken cistern is you begin to pour your affections and your passions into that thing that you want to satisfy you. But because there's a hole in the bottom, by the time you finish pouring and go to drink from it, you're only getting a sip that leaves you still thirsty because everything else has fallen out the bottom. Whereas God, when he says, uh, I am the, the fountain of living water, once uh, God being the thing that you're putting, your, the person that you're putting your hope in, once, he's, once your passions have been filled in him, you never have to go back and refill because as soon as you finish drinking, it's filled back up again. And that's why he's saying, I want you to be satisfied in me. He said, that, that's why he says, he says, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. He said, he said may you, I want you to have my joy, John 15. I want you to have my joy, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full, right? So he's trying to get across to them that there is a hope 
that can be placed in the one uh, who gives hope and who is the satisfier and completer of the hope that you have, that you might not come up wanting more or come up empty. And so he's trying to encourage them with that reality uh, that, that God is the only one that you can put your hope in. And so, and so he says, uh, we don't want you to be informed about those who are asleep, that you may grieve as others do who have no hope. See, one of the, one of the issues with the Thessalonian church is uh, they, were, uh, they were worried about separation. They were worried about being separated from God. And so uh, even they, they were like, okay, we've been united with Christ in life, but that doesn't matter because that death will be separated from him. But see, Paul knows better than that uh, because in Romans chapter 8, he encourages the Roman church and he basically says, he says, he says like, who, who can separate us from the love of God? He says, who shall separate us? He says, shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution or family or danger or sword? And then he goes on and say, he says, he says, I am, what do you say? He says, I am convinced or if you got the old King James, it says, I'm persuaded, right? I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, uh, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers or principalities, that, that nothing created, nothing in, in heaven above or earth beneath will ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul wants to let them know that there's absolutely nothing, once you come into proper relationship with God, that can separate you from him. Not even death. And so he's trying to encourage them with these words by letting them know, like, stop being all shook up because I'm going to give you a hope that goes beyond this world. And so he says, don't grieve as others do who have no hope. Uh, Verse 14, he says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him, uh, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so Paul here begins to reiterate uh, the common known theme of uh, the death of Christ and the resurrection. Now, back in that day, there were were absolutely no arguments about whether Jesus died. That was a known fact. Even people who hated Jesus would admit, yes, we killed him. Yes. Uh, Like, it's, it's a plain and simple fact. Like, Jesus himself the man from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, by way of Galilee, whose parents were Joseph and Mary, that Jesus, whom he said was the Christ, he died. Yes, right. So that was an issue. And uh, the issue is now the resurrection, right? Whether or not Jesus actually got up from the grave. And the only issue was whether or not the body was stolen or whether he actually got up. There wasn't a whole bunch of theories or themes going on. It, it was only two. Either Jesus got up from the grave or the, the disciples stole his body. And, and what began to happen was uh, people who began to trust Geist believed that he actually himself got up from the grave. Now, the reason they believed that was because, one, Jesus showed himself to over 500 people during the time that he got up before he ascended. But then also, uh, how crazy would it be for the disciples uh, for them to be believing a lie and yet still be willing to be persecuted? See, even, even the worst liars will concede the truth at some point. Like, at some point, you can lie your way uh, to, to as far as you want to, but at some point, you, let, uh, you, you give up a little bit of the truth, right? And for these disciples, there just comes a point when you're lying where it's just, it's not worth it anymore. It's not worth it anymore. 
these dudes were getting burned alive, crucified upside down. I mean, they were, they, I mean, they were getting stoned. Like, they were, they were getting beaten by sticks and, and like, cra- I mean, just crazy stuff. If I knew that Jesus hadn't rose from the dead and I stole his body, I would have been gave it back. <laughs> I'm just being honest. I'd have been gave it back. As soon as the first stick hit me, I got it. Like, the amount of persecution that they faced and the reality that they would still hold that we believe in this resurrected Lord, this resurrected one, because we've seen him with our eyes, uh, was enough for them to continue going. And the faith and passion and zeal by which they shared the gospel of this resurrected Jesus was enough to convince people that he was indeed alive. And so Paul is reiterating that fact that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, uh, that those who are found in Christ, he will also raise you from the dead. And so he's encouraging them with that fact that Jesus is the agent by which the resurrection happens. So he's saying the resurrection doesn't happen. God's not going to raise you from the dead because of anything you did or because of anything you do. God's going to raise you from the dead because he raised Jesus from the dead. And if you believe in Jesus, then you can be assured just as he was raised that you too will be raised. And so all of these words Paul is using to to give them some sort of hope to look forward to and to assure their hope that not only will they get to participate, those who have passed away before Christ's return, not only will they get to participate in the second coming of Christ, but he's giving them signs. Like, listen, if God raised Jesus from the dead, he said he's going to raise you too. So that's something I can hang my hat on. So now I can be convinced that I can trust in the resurrection of God as something worth, as worth something because, because he raised from the grave because he raised from the dead, God validated in him such a way that he said, anybody who now believes this crazy idea that you rose from the dead, I'm going to raise them up too. And so Paul is trying to encourage them with this. And so he says, since we believe, even so, those who through Jesus, Jesus being the agent, God will bring those with him who have fallen uh, asleep. Uh, look with me at verse uh, 15. He says, for, we, uh, for this we declare to you uh, by the word of the Lord. And now Paul is getting ready to tell them what was declared to him uh, by the word of the Lord. And what's key about this is he says that, that uh, this declaration came from the Lord, but this is the only place in the Bible where uh, these events are detailed in this manner. And so uh, many people think that, that Paul, this was a special revelation uh, given just to, just to Paul at the time. But nonetheless, he says, for this we declare to you by the word of the Lord. Again, he's saying it's not coming from him. What I'm about to tell you is not coming from me. Like, I'm not telling you my word. I'm not giving you my assumptions. I'm not giving you my perspective, but I've been told this by the Lord so you can count it as worthy and true, right? So for this, we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those um, will not precede those uh, who have fallen asleep. And so uh, Paul here is saying, uh, the, Paul here is saying, not only will they be raised from the dead, but you can believe that those who have fallen asleep will actually be raised with God before you will. Well, those who are alive. Because uh, some people say that Paul, when he says we, is using that as a term, saying that he thought he himself was going to be present uh, when Christ returned, uh, where some say that he was using that euphemistically, just saying like we as in the church, those of us who are part of the church, who are alive still when Christ returns, uh, will, will not be taken before those who have died. What does he mean by this? What he's basically saying is that there is, you don't get a greater benefit being raised from the dead just because you're alive when he comes. 
And so one of the issues was not only just will, the, like, will, will those who die be raised and participate in the second coming of Christ, but do we lose out on something because we've died? And so Paul wants to encourage them by saying, listen, even if you're not alive when Jesus comes, there's like those who are alive don't get a higher benefit. They don't get special privileges for being alive when Jesus comes back. There's common ground because you've been united in Christ. And so he just wants to encourage them that whether dead or alive, when Jesus returns, there's no difference. The only thing you need to be worried about is whether or not you've actually been brought into an eternal relationship with God through Christ. That should be your concern. And so again, Paul is using that to encourage them. And so we get to verse 16 and 17. Verses 16 and 17. Now we're about to, we're about to just as a... Uh, intro real quick. We're about to get into some stuff. I'm going to give you some, some views on uh, eschatology, uh, some of the popular views of some of the eschatology that's out there, um, sort of what we believe here. Uh, it's going to be very uh, brief. It's not going to be exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but there's a, reason, there's a reason we're going to go through uh, this eschatology a little bit, and I'm going, to tell you, I'm going to tell you the reason why Paul said these words. So we're going to get through a little eschatology, but I'm going to share with you why specifically Paul shared this with the Thessalonian church, right? And so he says in verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. Three important things you need to know uh, as uh, when Christ returns or, or for the coming of Christ. Three important things. One, uh, Christ will come personally. Amen. Jesus will come personally. That's why it says in verse 16 that the Lord himself will descend, right? Now, the, the, the crazy thing is when, when Jesus ascended, he sent down the Spirit, right, as a helper, not, not a substandard God, not, 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 some, not some lower uh, being just to kind of help you out, but he sent God the Spirit to help you. But in, when Christ returns again, he's saying, I- I'm going to come myself. I'm going to, when I crack the sky, you're going to know it's me. Now, and he's not just talking about believers. Whether, whether you've trusted Christ or you haven't trusted Christ, the minute he cracks through the sky, you're going to know it's Jesus. You're, you're gonna know. You're gonna know it. You're not gonna. You're not gonna think it's Jesus from down south of the border. You're not gonna think it's just somebody who was named Jesus in honor of Jesus. You're gonna know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was indeed the one who was crucified and who indeed rose again. And you'll know he, he's Jesus. There won't be any excuses. There won't be anything you can say. You won't be able to say that you didn't know it was him. Matter of fact, for those who haven't trusted Christ, you're going to wish you didn't know it was him because that's how crazy it's going to be. So he's going to step off of a cloud and just be floating in midair, uh, uh, and he's going to come, and everybody, the all of earth and all of creation is going to know that the king has indeed returned. He's going to come personally right? He's going to come powerfully, right? It says, it says that there's going, to be, uh, there's going to be a cry of command and a voice of the archangel and the sound of a trumpet. So basically, like, there's going to be a big parade and celebration when he gets... Matter of fact, the, the noise from heaven is going to break the sound barrier and engulf the entire earth to drum up his return. And, and you'll know it's him. Like, it's going to be bananas. I mean... You thought the Olympics was something. It's going to be some old crazy dumbness when, when Christ come back. 
I mean, I, I don't know what it's going to sound like. It doesn't say which archangel. It doesn't say if it's Michael or somebody else. It don't say what the trumpet going to sound like. Uh, but BK is probably going to sound better than yours, brother. I love you. You're a great trumpet, uh, trumpet player, but it's going to trash whatever you do over here because it's, it's going to be coming from, from the eternal uh, throngs of heaven. Like, y'all don't understand how crazy this is going to be. When Christ returns, he's going to step out. Not only are you going to know it's him, but they just going to, like, everything else is going to be like silence because all you're going to hear is this noise trumpeting his return. So he's going to come personally, he's going to come powerfully, and he's going to come purposefully. See, the first time Christ came, he came as a suffering servant. He came as a lamb. He came as one who was going to save many from their sins. But when he returns now, he's no longer coming as a, a humble dude just trying to get a mission accomplished. His mission will be to take those and gather those who have trusted in his name and to declare war on all the rest of his enemies. Right, And so when he comes, Jesus isn't coming back to chill out and hang out with you. And he's not, he doesn't want to give you an opportunity to now repent in him. There's not going to be any time for any of that. Because the minute he comes back, he's already begun his mission. And there's no stopping it. And there's no ending it. And you better hope that you're on his side. Because if you've read Revelation 19, it says he's going to come back on a horse. And he's going to be tatted up on his thigh. And his, 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 his robe is going to be dripping blood. Like, just dripping blood, right? And he's, his eyes are going to be like cyclops and just spitting fire out on people. And he's going to have a sword coming out of his mouth. I don't know about you, but the, even, I'm, I know I'm going to be with Jesus, but that's still going to freak me out. <laughs> like, when, when, you see, when you see that, you're going to wish that you were on his side. And you're going to be glad that you are. You're going to be glad that you're with him. Like, he's he not, he not coming as no gentle dude. He's coming to wreck shop when he come back. And you're gonna, you, you better wish that you're on his side. He's coming back purposefully. All right, so let's look at some of these different views. We're going to walk through some of these different views of eschatology, and then I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit about why I'm sharing this with you and what it all means, right? So uh, different views. Some of the different views are whether or not there's a literal millennial reign of Christ on the earth, the timing of his second coming, the timing of the rapture, uh, whether or not believers will be present during the tribulation, how much of the tribulation they'll experience, uh, the person of the Antichrist, the role Israel will play, if any role. Like there's, I mean, there's a ton of stuff and differences about how this, the word of God has been interpreted for the end times. And I'll be honest with you, I'm studying all this stuff, trying to get ready, and it was frustrating me to no end. Like my brain physically hurts trying to like gather all these concepts and all that stuff together. That's why I'm just going to give you such a very brief synopsis on what it is we're talking about, and I'll tell you why I'm, get, I'm making it very brief. Uh, so we have uh, one of the views is called amillennialism, which state that there's, states that there's not a literal millennium reign of Christ, but rather that Christians are currently reigning with Christ in a figurative sense as we strive to bring about justice and righteousness in the world, right? So that's amillennialism. amillennialism. Uh, there's uh, the preterist uh, historical view, which holds that most of Revelations was already fulfilled in the first century, and that many of the prophetic details uh, relate to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. 70 AD. Uh, now, the Preterist view leads to postmillennialism, which says that we are currently awaiting the final return of Christ, 
which occurs at the end of a non-literal millennium that began with the destruction of Jerusalem again back in 70 AD. Uh, Y'all understand why it was hurting my brain, right? All right, this is only two. We got a couple more to go. Now, there are some extreme preterists uh, that believe that Christ's second coming already occurred after the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, then you've got the premillennialist. Sorry, I got to take a break, man. <laughs> so you've got premillennialists uh, that views, uh, who views that uh, most of the end times prophecy has yet to be fulfilled and that Christ's second coming is followed by a literal thousand-year reign with the resurrected saints uh, and the differences, most of the differences within premillennialism have to do with the timing of the rapture or the timing of, uh, of Christ coming back, right? And so we've got, within premillennialism, you've got a number of different groups. So you've got pre-tribulation or pre-trib, which is based on dispensationalism. You've got mid-tribulation, pre-wrath, and post-tribulation. Y'all got all that? Yeah. All right. No, good. Okay. All right. So, um, so uh, post-tribulation... Uh, sees a single coming of Christ. It says that the church will be kept by God's grace uh, through the tribulation uh, that will get glorified bodies in order to meet Christ as he comes to earth to defeat the Antichrist at Armageddon and establish his millennial reign in Jerusalem. Okay, uh, so that's, those are a bunch of the different views, right? Um, so what do I want you to take from this, right? Based off what we here at Epiphany believe the word of God says, uh, that there is, there is a personal coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there is, he's going to come one time. Meaning, meaning what? Like, God is not going to come and stick his foot out of heaven and float in the air and wait for people to join him and then go back to glory and wait some time and then come back again. The Bible says that there's one second coming of Jesus, which means when he comes, there's going to be an act of, and I don't know how, how I'll be honest, I don't know how it's going to play out, but there's, one, there's an act of Christ coming one time where he gathers the saints to himself while also declaring war on his enemies, right? Now, as believers in Christ, you will get a new resurrected body. So those who have already gone to be with the Lord, their souls will come down with God from glory and meet their bodies in the air. Those who of us who are alive will, get, uh, will be immediately transformed with resurrected bodies that will be able to withstand all of the glory of God so we can actually be in his presence. Now, what, is, what does that mean? Now, now hold on a second. So, so even, even, those, even those who have not trusted Christ will get new bodies, right? I'll tell you the difference. The, the bodies of those who have not trusted Christ uh, will be new bodies, but they'll be imperishable for the sake of facing the eternal wrath of God yet not being destroyed. So, 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 so hell is not an escape, and we'll get to it later because death and hell get tossed into the lake of fire, right? So uh, hell is not an escape from God, but, but uh, once, once Christ comes back, those who haven't trusted in him, once he's defeated and taken care of trashing all his enemies, you'll get a new body. Only, the only thing is you'll experience the full wrath of God, so it will be intense. I have no clue, don't want to know what it's going to feel like, but it'll be bad enough that you can feel it, yet it won't destroy you so you can feel it for eternity. Now, on the other hand, as a believer, you'll get a new body, which will allow you in the same manner to be in the presence of God without him destroying you. Like, Because I don't think we understand fully, if you experience the fullness of God's love, it would destroy you. If you experience the fullness of his grace and his mercy, it would destroy you. See, you think just the wrath of God would destroy you. The personhood of God is so great in all his attributes that no matter which one you stand before, if he hasn't given you this new indestructible body, it's going to tear you apart. 
And so, so that's one of the things we can look forward to, a return of Christ where he comes one time and gather, separates the wheats from the tares, gather those together that belong to him, declares war on his enemies, but yet we get to be with him forever. Okay? That's why it's important. That's what you need to know. That's the importance of what you need to know. Now, what, what happens is a lot of people have used these differing views based on how they interpret the scriptures as a way to justify their division within the church. The point of Paul's, and we'll get to this in a second, but the point of Paul sharing this information with the Christians at Thessalonians was never to be a source of conflict for them. It was never supposed to be a source that divided them. It was supposed to be an, and it was supposed to be an opportunity to be encouraged that Jesus was coming back. That's why. Look at verse seventeen b for me. That's why he says this. He says. Uh, he says, uh, all right, look at 17, those, uh, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. What does he say after that? So we will always be with the Lord. So we will always be with the Lord. The, the, the most important thing about the return of Christ is knowing that when he returns, you will get to be with him always. So, so here, if you're using this as an opportunity to argue with one another or to place yourself in superiority of somebody else's views, then you're wrong and you're in sin. I know plenty of other people who don't share the same views I do in the return of Christ, but those are secondary issues. Those are still brothers and sisters in Christ. And the goal and the point of Paul saying this stuff is something that we typically skip over. When he returns, we will always be with him. We will always be with him. That's why I love it when, Paul, when, when Jesus is talking to the, uh, the, the other man who's being crucified with him, the other criminal who's on the cross. He said, the, the guy says to Jesus, like, when you get into your kingdom, like, remember me. What, Jesus, what does Jesus tell him? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, too many times we spend, part, we spend time on the paradise and not enough time on the you will be with me. To, listen, listen. To, it didn't matter where he said you was going to be at. He could have dropped you in the middle of North Camden or in North Philly or in Cambodia or anywhere. The issue, he said, you will be with me. He didn't even have to finish the sentence. It didn't matter where you were going to be because the object of your longing to be with him is to be with him. See, see, too many times we want, we, we, we marinate the Lord. We want the Lord to return. Many of y'all just want God to come back so you don't have to deal with your issues in this life. Some of y'all just tired of paying your bills. Or y'all tired of dealing with ignorant people. Or y'all sick of sin in the world. Listen, that's all well and good. But if your hope for Christ's return is anything other than being with him, then you've missed it. You've missed it. There's absolutely nothing comparable to being with him. That's the hope he's trying to give this church. He's saying, look, nothing will separate you, and not only will nothing separate you, but don't place your hope in anything else to satisfy you more than being with him. Because the, the minute you long to go to glory other than just being with Jesus, then you've committed idolatry in your heart. Because I don't know if you know, but at, like, heaven ain't heaven unless God is there. Matter of fact, the heaven that exists now ain't going to be there no more. Because there's going to be a new one. 
As a believer, that's, that's what we have to look forward to. The only thing we have to look forward to is he's going to come back and you get to be with him forever. When's the last time you encouraged somebody like that? See, too often people go through stuff and you're trying to encourage them to get past their problem now. You only want to deal with their now issue. You're trying to help them solve their problems now. When's the last time you encouraged them and saying, you might have to stay this in a while, but Jesus will be back? When's the last, when, like Paul, Paul, if you notice in, 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 in the epistles, Paul never prayed that these people would get out of persecution or any of that stuff. He never prayed their problems away. He prayed that the Lord would allow them to endure and persevere and that their perseverance would build character and that their character would build hope and that their hope would never put them to shame. See, some of y'all need to encourage somebody to stay in their tribulation a little longer. Some of y'all just need to stay there. And your longing and your escape shouldn't be to look forward to the time when you can get out of it, but the time when Jesus will return and make all things new. Because what's the point of encouraging you to get out your trunk? Listen, I'm not saying to forcefully put yourself in stuff. That's, don't hear me say that. But what I am saying is stop spending so much time trying to fix the now problem because as soon as you get out of that one, another one's going to come. And then you're going to be so, then you're going to be frustrated again. And you're going to be angry with God again because your heart hasn't been fixed on just being with him when he returns. You can't get past thinking about this life, this temporal life. You want your joy to be complete now without Jesus' return. All you want is you want your comfort. And you want your, you, like you just want, you want everything to be okay with you. You don't want to never have to go through nothing. And you don't want to have to endure in faith waiting for Christ to return. See, I'm part of this younger generation, so I know how we do. We don't know how to endure and persevere in faith waiting for Christ to return. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul is talking to them about all this mess that's, that they're going through. And he encourages them by saying, uh, it will finish, your tribulations will end when Jesus comes back. That's what he tells them. Because their hope wasn't in getting out merely of their issues and their problems and their circumstances. Their hope was fixed in knowing that there's a greater renewal of things to happen when Christ returns. There's nothing on this earth that can be renewed fully. There's nothing on this earth that will satisfy and complete your joy. That's why, that's why the supreme and ultimate hope for the believer is the return of Jesus. Because it's only then when he begins to make things new, when he'll fully make it new. So that's why he encourages, he says, listen, I'm sharing this stuff with you. I'm sharing this information about the return of Christ and what it's going to look like. I could care less about you arguing over the, sim, like the, the different issues and different, uh, like how you interpret. Christ is coming back. Number one, are you going to be ready when he returns? Number two, if you're ready and he takes you back with him, you get to be with him forever. That's the greatest hope you can give somebody. You get to, you get to be with Jesus. You get, to, you get to be with Jesus. Every, 
everything that we endure as believers is culminated in the reality that we get to be with Jesus finally. That's when, that's when rest happens. When you get to be with Jesus. That's when your race has been completed. When you get to be with Jesus. There's nothing else that matters. There's nothing that should consume the thoughts of our soul more than a longing simply to be with him. I, I can't wait for the day where my eyes get to behold the beauty of this king that my soul has been longing to see. See, I only get to see him now because of his word. I only get to see him now because of the answered prayers. I only get to see him now, but now, I can't wait till my eyes get to behold the beauty of his majesty. And I get to look at him, and I get to spend time with him, and there's nothing blocking the way. There's nothing blocking the way. I just get to be with him. I just get to be with him. I love my wife and I love being married, but there's, see, there's nothing about her that compares to being with, with Jesus. There's nothing. That's your hope as the believer is to simply long to be with him. I know sometimes you got to go through things. I know sometimes you're going to walk through some difficult seasons in your life. The only hope you have is to look forward to being with him. That's all you have. Anything else is fool's gold. So he says, so we will always be with him. And then how's he end it? What does he say? Verse 18. Therefore... Encourage one another with these words. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The whole point of this passage is Paul building them up in hope to encourage them that there is life beyond this temporal one. And the, their joy will be fulfilled when Jesus returns. See, all this end times prophecy and all the end times debate, if it's not, if it hasn't manifested itself where, where you're encouraging other believers, if your talk about the return of Jesus isn't meant to encourage believers, then what are you talking about it for? Who, if, if it's not central to Jesus coming back and getting his people, like what are you giving people hope for? The, the, the most, the greatest blessing you can give to somebody's hurting soul is to let them know that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make everything all right. He's coming back and he's going to make it all right. Because we get to be with him. We get to be with him. Father, Lord, we just pray. God, we pray that you would give us new affections for longing for you, God. We pray that the thought of your return would bring tears to our eyes, tears of joy, as we look forward to an eternity of spent time with you. No sin in the way. The busyness of this world not in the way. Nothing in the way. Just you and being with 
believers of God, worshiping with you all the day long. God, would you, would you soak us in your presence? Would you allow us to feel the sense of your presence in such a way that we'd rather be there than here? That was Paul's prayer. He said, he said I'd, I'd rather be there, but you need me to be here for your sake. But he wanted to go. God, I pray you would encourage us with this reality that the greatest thing we could ever hope in, the greatest thing we could ever look for, forward to is being with you when you return. That's all that matters. That's all that has any worth. That's the only hope that gives us any substance to endure and persevere is knowing that when you come, you'll wipe every tear from our eye. There will be no more weeping. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. Because there'll just be you and the presence of your glory. And we'll get to know you. We'll spend the rest of eternity getting to know you and being fully and completely satisfied by who you are. And so we pray that today in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ.